Let's have a seat. So have you ever wanted something really, really bad and you begged your parents for it? Like I'm talking about like when you were a kid, Christmas time's coming up and all that, like you begged your parents for it and they wouldn't give it to you because they kept saying, you're going to hurt yourself. Like Ralphie's BB gun in a Christmas story, right? That's all he wanted was a Red Rider carbine action, 200 shot air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. I mean, that's all he wanted. He begged his mom, please give me a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas. And his mom kept saying what to him? You'll shoot your eye out. No, we're not going to give it. You'll shoot your eye out. But he begs and he pleads and eventually she acquiesces and what happens? He shoots his eye out, basically. Well, for me, that thing was not a BB gun. It was a three-wheeler. A, 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 a hot, big red Honda 250R, 1986 to be exact. I was 12 years old. And that's what I wanted more than anything in the world. My brother and I were together on this. Like we started lobbying mom like maybe in October. Sometime around this year we started lobbying mom like, man, if we just, just, if we just had a three-wheeler because all the other kids got three-wheelers and we had one of those. I mean, th- and this was back in the day when parents could give their kids dangerous gifts. Like, we already had a set of lawn darts, so, you know, maybe a three-wheeler is what we need. And so, we, but we begged, and mom's like, no, you're going to hurt yourself. There's no way I'm giving you that. You're going to hurt yourself. But all the other kids have one, and, and like, we could use it to do chores, and we can, like, check on it. Like, we had all these practical, reasonable reasons of why we needed the three-wheeler. And we begged and pleaded, and eventually, she acquiesced, and what happened? We hurt ourselves. I still got a scar on my finger from where I ran into the barbed wire fence. My brother flipped it, jumping over the driveway. My dad broke his tailbone, showing us how to operate the clutch, which is a great story I'll tell you later. Uh, I mean, like the whole family got hurt by the three-wheeler. Eventually, the federal government banned those, and uh, we had to give it up. But we, the whole, whole family got damaged by this. Well, for Israel, it wasn't a BB gun, and it wasn't a three-wheeler. It was a king. That's what they wanted more than anything in the world. They, they begged God for a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. All the other nations got a king. Why can't we have a king like all the other nations? And they went to the prophet Samuel, and they said, Samuel, we want a king just like all the other nations. And, and Samuel told them, you're going to hurt yourself. Actually, God put it in a much more blunt terms than that. If you look at the actual text, God said, if I give you a king then he'll take your sons and put them in his armies. He'll take your daughters and put them to work. Uh, He will take a tenth of all your flocks, all your herds, all your income, all your harvest, and then he will make you slaves yourselves. Basically, God predicted government overreach and taxes. And he said, if you get a king, that's what you're going to get. And they still begged for a king. And so God acquiesced, and he gave them a king. 
And what happened? They ended up hurting themselves. Now, there's two key important points right here that I want to start at the outset because we're going to go into the story of kings today. But uh, I, want to, I want to show you this real quick. Two things. Number one is that God never intended for Israel to be like all the other nations. And I do need to go back to that scripture I skipped. Thank you, Ty, for putting that up. 1 Samuel 8, this is right here. This is uh, what God said after he said, I'm going to give you a king. He said, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. God speaking through the prophet Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now that verse is key because here's the point. God never intended for Israel to be like all the other nations. God intended Israel to be different than all the other nations. God is is intending Israel to be a called out nation, to be a chosen people. He intended to bless all the other nations through the nation of Israel. So he never intended for them to have a king. And that's because God was their king. Actually, what God says when they, when they choose to have a king, he's like, you don't need a king. I'm the one who's been leading you into battle. I'm the one who's been declaring victory for you. Why do you need a king like all the other nations? You have a God. You have a God who has led you out of slavery and, and rescued you from the hand of Egypt. You have a God that's parted the waters for you miraculously to leave Egypt and then miraculously to enter into the promised land. You have a God who's delivered your enemies into your hands, who's, who's given you the promised land, and who has provided for your every need. Why do you need a king? But he gave them one. They asked for a king, and he gave them one. Although he said through Samuel, because they have asked for a king, the reason they're asking for a king is because they have rejected me as a king. And then you enter into the time, you move from the time of judges into the time of kings. And that's where we are in the story. That's what you're going to read about this week. We'll move from the story of Judges and Ruth and those things into the stories from the, from the Bible. It's First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, not in that order necessarily, and First and Second Chronicles. Those are the, the in, in, in your reading, it's only like three or four chapters that we'll be reading in, in the storybook. But it's the story of the kings. And there's three main kings, and you're familiar with all the names, three main kings that we'll talk about today, and you'll read about this week, and then next week, We'll read about a lot of other kings. But the three main kings were uh, these guys right here. And I don't know that this is actually what they look like, but uh, these are the guys. First, you got Saul. So Saul is the first king of Israel. He is anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. And Saul, despite this picture here, uh, is like, he's like your stereotypical king. Like he, he looks like a king. He's, uh, he's tall, handsome, strong. Like he's, he's what you would think a king would look like. And Samuel anoints Saul over king of Israel. And Saul is a pretty good king. Like early days, he's a pretty good king. He does a pretty good job. He, he wins a lot of battles. Uh, Israel becomes strong under Saul's leadership. But you know what they say about power. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Paul becomes corrupted. And he becomes corrupted through his power. Uh, 
he disobeys God, and because he disobeys God, God says, I'm going to raise up another king, and he anoints David to be the future king of Israel. Paul gets paranoid, or Saul, excuse me, Saul gets paranoid about David. He tries on multiple occasions to kill David. Uh, he is jealous, he is prideful, he is arrogant, he uh, lacks integrity, he disobeys God, and ultimately the story of Saul ends tragically with him falling on his own sword in battle on the same day that all his sons are killed. So Saul's trajectory as king starts on this high point as Samuel anoints him, and eventually it ends in tragedy. Then you've got David. Gary was referencing him in our... Uh, communion meditation and David is a is a poet and he's a shepherd and David doesn't look like your stereotypical king like matter of fact when he was anointed as king his father Jesse left him in the field and said one of my other sons is going to be king because David's the least likely to be king but God says I don't look at the things that man looks at man looks at the outward appearance I look at the heart and so he chooses David to be the second king of Israel because David is a man after God's own heart and David is loved by the people of Israel they love David he he does a great job he leads him into battle wins many battles for them he takes Jerusalem as the the capital of Israel and becomes the permanent home of Israel I mean David does all of these great things because David is a great king he is humble uh, he has integrity he is faithful he is trustworthy he does what God asked him to do until he doesn't and there's a story of his a very famous moral failing of David in which he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof and he wants to to take her and he does because he's the king and she cannot refuse him and that leads to a whole list of sin it just kind of starts to spiral out of control because there's a cover-up and there's lies and there's deceit and eventually murder is involved in it and so David's kingship follows the same trajectory it starts out on this really good positive note and everything's going great for David and then it starts to go downhill and eventually he loses his kingdom and he his family like the story of David's family is just tragic to read about what happened with his son Absalom and all his I mean, it, it, it just falls into chaos because of his sin now the difference and Gary pointed this out in our meditation the difference between Saul and David is that when David was confronted with his sin he immediately repented and because he repented, he was given forgiveness, but he still had to deal with the consequences of his sin. And one of the main consequences was he lost the child that was born to Bathsheba. The second child born to Bathsheba, though, became the third king that you need to know about, and that's Solomon. And if you follow Solomon's story, guess what? It follows the same trajectory as Saul and the same trajectory as David. Solomon starts out on this great front. He builds the temple for God because David envisioned a temple in Jerusalem for God. Solomon is tasked with building that temple, and he gets that done. And Solomon uh, is uh, applauded for his wisdom. Sorry, that thunder threw me off just a little bit. So Solomon's applauded for his wisdom. I, like, I, I, was going, I was like mentally saying, did I say something wrong? Or are we cool? Um, so, uh, because he asked, God says, what do you want? And Solomon asked for wisdom to administer justice. And because he asked for wisdom, God also gave him great wealth and power and riches. And so Solomon builds Israel into a great kingdom. But he has 700 wives. He takes 700 wives from the, the daughters of these foreign kings, and then he starts to worship the gods of these foreign kings. He starts to follow the customs of these foreign kings and the worst thing Solomon does is he enacts slave labor 
to build his buildings. Now I want you to imagine, think of where we've been in the story so far. How could the king of a nation who were delivered from slavery, they themselves start enacting slave labor? The Bible Project video this week actually says that at the end of Solomon's reign, he reigned more like the Pharaoh than he did like a god of Israel. So every one of these kings follows this same trajectory. It starts out great, and it's full of promise, and then it's a downfall. And then another one starts out great, and it's full of promise and a downfall. And another one starts out great, full of promise, and it's a downfall. And why do you hear the rest of the story? The next week when we read about the rest of the kings, because the, whole, the kingdom even ends up falling apart eventually because of these kings. Now, my question as I'm reading this history is, why would the biblical authors include these stories? Like, why would they do this? Because if I'm writing a history of my ancestors, if I'm writing a history of my people, I, I would not include all the bad stuff. Right? I mean, if, you, if, if we're writing a history, we would try to include the good stuff. Like, that's why we always talk about the past as the good old days. We talk about, about the good old days because we only talk about the good parts of the past. We don't like to talk about the bad parts of the past. We like to forget about that. Don't talk about that. That makes us look bad. That makes our God look bad. All this kind of stuff. So why would the authors of First, Second King, First, Second Samuel, Chronicles, why would they include all of this bad stuff in there? That's not typically what we do. Like when I'm doing a, a funeral for somebody, if I'm, if I'm giving a eulogy, I don't get up and talk about all the bad things that happened and all their character flaws and all the sins and their disobedience and all that kind of stuff. Have you ever been to a funeral where they do that? No, I mean, they call that, you know, they say sometimes the preacher's preaching them into heaven, right? And sometimes we do overdo it. And I overdid it once in my life. I won't tell the guy's name. But it was several years ago, long enough that none of you guys remember. Uh, but there was a guy who went to church here, and I didn't know him that well. He'd, he'd been coming for the last two or three years. And he was an older gentleman. And uh, so when he died, I was asked to do his funeral. And I went and did the funeral. And I, all I knew of him is what I'd seen him at church on a Sunday morning, you know, here and now. And, and so I just did the best I j job I could. And, I, I mean, it was a great eulogy. I mean, it was, he was a great, great man. And uh, after it was over, one of his best friends came up to me. And he said, preacher, that was a good eulogy. Man, that was good. I don't know who you were talking about, but it was very, very good. And, and he, <laughs> it was like point taken. Okay, I get it. Like he may have, there may have been some character flaws in there that I didn't know about because I, you don't talk about that stuff. So, so why would the biblical authors choose to include this stuff? Like when you read the Bible, and you'll find this out the rest of the Old Testament, why does the Bible present an unfiltered history of the people of Israel why does it tell you it, you know it, it doesn't seem to glorify its heroes it seems to tell you what was the matter with all of its heroes I think there's a couple of reasons for it I'll add a third one after hearing Gary's meditation uh, I'll, I'll add number one is so we can relate because I mean these, these like a lot of times you read American history of these great mighty people in American history and these great biographies and and we're like you know we can't relate to that it's because in America we tend to whitewash all the bad stuff and just include the good stuff about these people in Israel remember it's Hebrews have a theological reason for why they're writing the history and so I'll here's a couple other ideas one I think the author wanted to show us the consequences of trusting our own judgment 
the consequences of going our own way. If you're going to trust your judgment over God's judgment, if you're going to choose your ways over... I mean, the whole story of how David came about in Saul and Solomon is that Israel wanted to go their own way. They wanted a king. And God said, you don't need a king. And they said, no, we want one. He said, okay, I'll let you... You're making the decision. You can... Don't trust your own judgment. You see what happens when they do that. So I think that's one of the reasons. But I think the other reason is this. The author wanted to show us that the hero of the story is not a king. The hero of the story is not David, it's not Saul, it's not Solomon. The hero of the Old Testament is not Moses, it's not Joshua, it's not Joseph, it's not Abraham, it's not Isaac, it's not Israel. The hero of the story is God. And what the Hebrew writers are trying to show us is how God continues to rescue and redeem, how God continues to deliver. His people are stubborn. His people complain. His people sin. His people let him down. His people want things that's not good for them, and he gives it to them. He just continues to put up with these people of Israel because God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of justice. And God is doing all he can to deliver the people of Israel. And that's the point of the story. That's why we have all these stories recorded here is so that we can see all the ways that God is choosing to deliver Israel. And that might be the reason he gave them a king in the first place. Because the story I want to kind of pay just a little bit of attention to is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you've got a Bible, you can, you can find that, 2 Samuel 7. And if, you, if you're in this book, it's uh, page 158, if you want to look at that, 158 or 159, if you've got that book with you. It's a story that honestly gets overlooked in uh, the story of David. Because there's all these great stories about David. You know, there's the story about how he was chosen as king, and then there's the story about David and Goliath, which is probably the most iconic story about David. There's the story of him cutting off the hem of uh, Saul's garment when, garment went, when Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, which is a, a funny and interesting story. Um, there's, there's a story about David dancing half naked before the Ark of the Covenant when he came in. He embarrassed his wife. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stories about David. And the story about David and Bathsheba. But the story that gets overlooked might be the most important one. And it's right here in the seventh chapter of of 2 Samuel, and it's right after David has captured Jerusalem and established a permanent home for the nation of Israel, and David has an idea. Just like Israel had an idea like, hey, we need a king, and God said, no, you don't need a king. No, no, we need a king. Well, David had an idea, and he said, God, you need a home of your own. David says, essentially, I think it's in Chapter 7, verse 2, he says, Here I am living in a house of cedar, which meant David had this you know, really nice house. Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And the ark of the covenant represented the presence of God. And the presence of God was remaining in a tent, which was the tabernacle. And God had given Moses all the instruction for how to build the tabernacle. And so David says, you need a permanent home of your own. We need to build you a temple. And God says to him, and Ty, you can just keep up with me here. I'm going to use, use my text here. It's through the prophet Nathan. Verse 5. God said, go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any one of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God basically says, I'm fine. I don't, my, my presence, I, I don't need a permanent home for my presence. I don't need a temple for my presence. If I ask any of the other rulers to build me a temple... Tell my servant David, verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you a ruler over my people of Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all the enemies before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. So this is kind of a precursor, like there's a promise coming. God promised Noah, I'll never destroy the earth again by flood. Uh, God promised... um, Uh, Abraham, I will make your descendants like the stars of the sky, and they will become a great nation. God promised Moses, I will deliver you into the land. So God's getting ready to make a promise to David. It's verse 10. He says, I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people of Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So David asked God, let me build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build the house of David into a great and mighty house. And he's referring to the lineage or the descendants of David. So this is this very significant promise that is being made here to God. It continues. The Lord declares, let's see, I got lost, hold on. Verse 13, I believe it is. No, verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Solomon, but he's also talking about someone else. Verse 14, I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, and floggings afflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, here's the promise to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And the reason we skip over that is because it doesn't seem like anything really significant happened there. David asked to build God a temple. God said, no, you're not going to build me a temple. Your son can build me a temple. But the, thing, the main point is, I'm going to make you, I'm going to build your house and your kingdom will re- remain forever. This is a promise that God is making to David that communicates his deliverance of the people of Israel. Because we have the benefit of reading this story because from hindsight. Like we know the rest of the story. We know what happens in the New Testament. We know that what David is being promised here, and the Jews knew this as David was being promised, he was being promised a messianic king would come from his line who would deliver the people of Israel and establish a kingdom in which God reigned forevermore. So there's a Messiah being promised, which is the promised one. There's a Christ 
being promised, which is not the last name of Jesus. It means the anointed one. There's a, there's a Christ being promised. There's a Messiah being promised to David. And we know the rest of the story. As Gary referenced it in there, I think this is one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament. And for some reason, I always thought this was one of the most boring sections of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the genealogy of Jesus. I want to challenge you to go back and read chapter 1 of Matthew this week after having read half of the Old Testament and see if it means something a little bit different to you. Because it references all those names we've been talking about. It talks about Abraham and it talks about all, all of these names we've been talking about. Because the first verse of the New Testament is that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Matthew knew what he was doing. He knew that the, the Jewish people were familiar with this story. That they knew that a promise had been made to David. That a Messiah was coming from the line of David. And now G Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one of David. That statement right there speaks volume. When Jesus uh, addressed the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 22 verse 42. He said, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David. They replied, because they all knew that a Messiah had been promised from the line of David. And now Jesus is declaring himself to be the promised Messiah. And then Acts chapter 2, the very first gospel sermon. What do you think Peter decides to reference? As he's speaking to all of these Jews on the day of Pentecost, what does he decide to reference? Who's he going to talk about? Look at this. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath. He's talking about 2 Samuel verse 7. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's fascinating to me to go back and watch how all of these pieces come together and how the New Testament takes on this whole new power and meaning and, and relevance when you understand what led up to that story, how, how generations earlier God had promised to David, from your descendants will come a Messiah who will rescue and redeem these people and he will rescue and redeem them permanently. Saving them from death itself because this Messiah will defeat even death. And now Matthew reveals this and Mark reveals it and John reveals it and Luke reveals it. And, and Peter in that first gospel sermon, he reveals that. He says, this is who David was talking about. This is who the promise was. This Jesus who has died and buried and was resurrected, this is who was promised. And when the people heard that, what happened? Luke says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that day, thousands of people put on Christ through baptism. And that's the beginning of the church. 
the beginning of the church as people realize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one promised to David. He is the one that will deliver us from our sins. He is the one that will deliver us from death. Israel didn't need a king. They had a king. They rejected him. God gave them what they wanted. And these human kings let them down. David let them down. Saul let them down. Solomon let them down. Wait till you get to Rehoboam and the rest of them. They just continually let them down. They let them down. They let them down. They let them down. And eventually God raises up from the line of David a king who will not let them down. Because he's a king who's perfect. He's a king who is without fault. He's a king without sin. And he will rescue and redeem. And that king is Jesus. And that's who we worship today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to extend an invitation to you. And I see that i got to quit here. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the clock. I want to extend an invitation to you to, to be baptized into Christ. Just like when the people of Israel first realized that Jesus was the Messiah, when they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they were ready to be baptized into Christ. That's all they needed at that time. All they needed was a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's based on that confession that people are baptized into Christ. And if that's something that you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God, or if you come to believe that, I want to encourage you to take that next step, which is baptism. And we do that here. You can write it on the card. You can go to that Connect card and mark, I'm ready to be baptized. You can write it if you're in the room with us. You can comment online. Ebony's online right now. She's our host online, our, our pastor that's there in the comment sections. And if you're like, hey, I'm ready to be baptized, message it in that comment section. Or uh, direct message Ebony or direct message the church, and somebody will be happy to respond or send us an email. But I just want to encourage you to think about giving your life to Christ because he is the redeemer he is the messiah he is the Christ that's been promised of long long ago and if you've never taken a step of faith to accept him as your messiah or as your savior I want to encourage you to to think about doing that let me pray for us and uh, we'll be dismissed here in just a second let me pray father I'm really enjoying reading through your word in this way and try and just I'm, I'm enjoying connecting the dots and seeing how your son Jesus just keeps showing up in the story and how your hand has been at work in generations and generations and you've worked with our failings and our sin and throughout all that time you've been at work bringing to fruition your plan from the beginning. And here we sit thousands of years after Saul and thousands of years after David thousands of years even after the cross and we still have the hope of salvation because of who Jesus is God I pray that as we read the Bible we continue to see you as the hero of the story it's not a story about us in the uh, only to the extent that it's a story about our failings it's a story of you and how you have rescued and redeemed how you turn it around, how the battle belongs to you, all the things we sing about this morning. God, you are good. And we read that throughout the pages of Scripture. Help us to be reminded of that in our lives. Give us the Spirit to remind us of your goodness. Give us the Spirit to convict us of sin. Uh, Give us the Spirit to help us to continue walking in your ways. And God, I pray for anybody online or anybody in the room that's maybe thinking about baptism or thinking about 
becoming a Christian or thinking about surrendering their life to you, I pray that the Spirit would be at work in their lives to convict them to go ahead and take that step. There's a lot of competing voices in their head right now probably saying, ah, you know, just don't do it. But I, I want to pray that your Spirit would convict them to go ahead and take that step and to reach out to someone and, and make that commitment and that decision of faith. It's in your Son's name I pray these things. Amen. All right, so you're going to read, hold on, I got it right here. You're going to read The Rise of a King, chapters 10 through 13. So four chapters uh, this week. It is a little bit longer reading, but it's really interesting reading. So you're going to read about Saul and David and Solomon this week. Uh, If you haven't given yet, I think I've got that in here somewhere. Yep, right there. If you haven't given yet, you can do that on the screen.